I've betrayed my spouse. How do I show them of my true change of heart before it's too late? And what is the difference between triggers and intrusive thoughts and how do I manage them? What's up, you guys? Welcome to the Therapy Brothers Podcast. I'm Brandon. I'm Tyler. We're brothers. We're therapists. We're not afraid of your questions. So bring it. What's up, you guys? I'm Tyler, your wandering therapist here. I'm going solo today. Brandon is filming a different project today and wasn't able to make it. And so we're going to get to these questions. But before I do that, I'm just going to do a really brief review. This review says, I just want to thank you for your discussions. They really helped me to see and process what is going on in my own life. I just really appreciate the insight and help. You two are amazingly gifted at what you do. Oh, that's really nice of you. Really appreciate the review. Uh, we always love to be fed things that make us make our heads get big. So appreciate that. Um, your, your ratings and reviews are helping. We have every single week, we have continued to grow with new people who are listening and downloading the podcast. If you're getting value from this, thank you for being willing to share with your friends and being willing to, to rate and review because that's how we reach more people. So um, excited to be here with you guys today. I, I'm on my second week back from having been pretty sick for a while, and it just feels so good to have. You don't you don't really know what you've got till you've lost it in so many senses, right? We've heard that we've heard that quote before many many times, but man, to have my physical health coming back and to feel this brain fog that's coming off of my head right now, uh, just it's like getting a new lease on life and uh, makes me realize how that kind of works in our life in a lot of other ways, not just with our physical health, but when we go through the doldrums and the darkness of some of the hardest times in our lives, we sometimes feel like it's never going to get any better. And we, we kind of can get hopeless and helpless and kind of get downtrodden and just feel that sense of heaviness. And eventually, as we always do, we somehow start to either change our perspective or we start to work through things. We start to solve our problems. And as we start to climb out, so often we get a new perspective on things and we get to change the way that we see ourselves and the world and we get to grow. And what a, what a beautiful process that is, even though sometimes it comes with a lot of pain to be able to find that new perspective. Um, well, I've got a couple of questions I want to get to today with you guys. The first one is about how to show my partner that I'm sincere about the changes I want to make. And the second one is about just understanding what intrusive thoughts and triggers are and maybe just a few tips on how to handle them. So this first question says, how do I show my spouse my change of heart if we're living separated at the moment? And how do I stop thinking about the worst case scenario that she's going to leave me before she's able to see that I'm sincere and that there's real change? Uh, man, this is a really, really good question. So oftentimes with any type of infidelity or any type of deception, there's obviously there's this big, there's this big gap in the ability to connect in a relationship. And if there's been several instances it often continues to erode the, the safety and the security and the trust in the relationship. And so it makes it really difficult for a spouse to, to, who has been betrayed to believe that any of the efforts have been sincere. 
there's a, there's a form of denial that we talk about in our practices, Brandon and I called, um, called compliance, where the form of denial of compliance is doing something so that other people will see me doing it so that they'll stay off my back. So, you know, a spouse who says he's going to stop drinking. And so every time he's around his partner, he's, he's sober and he's not drinking and he might go to several 12 step meetings or something. And he's showing his wife that he's doing everything that he thinks she wants him to do so that she won't leave him, but he's not doing it with a fully engaged heart. And so, Inevitably, because his heart isn't engaged, he's not going to make those changes. And eventually he's going to relapse. And then there's going to be the betrayal. There's going to be the trauma again. And over time, his wife learns to not believe what she sees in the efforts that are going forward. And so the hard part about this scenario is, is that if you have actually started to have a true change of heart, which which I use the term being broken, but in a very good way, where we finally come to this understanding that, you know, we have problems and we can own our problems. We can acknowledge that they're big problems and we can take ownership for the fact that we're going to do something about those problems. But that brokenness, it has to happen where the inside of us breaks and becomes humble. It's that and then the inside of us is what drives us to then start to do some of those same things that we've done in the past that we used to do just to keep people happy and to keep them off our back. Now we've got to engage in those same things with a different intention. And for somebody who's looking at it from the outside, they have a hard time distinguishing that. So this is a really good question because the truth is, is that if there has been some form of betrayal, the person who has been betrayed by nature, by the way that trauma works, they're going to see things from a default setting of negativity because negativity keeps them protected. So what happens with trauma is, is that when this thing happens, our brains get flooded with chemicals from, from the limbic system that say, you've got to survive. And those chemicals do a really good job. They're the fight, flight, or freeze chemicals. And so when I have something like the rug pulled out from underneath me of trust and relationship, that's maybe one of the most traumatic things that could happen to a human being because we're wired for connection and attachment. And now all of a sudden the place and the person that we thought we should be able to trust the most now suddenly doesn't feel so trustworthy. That's scary. And the limbic system kicks off and fires all those chemicals. And what it does is it helps protect yourself. But the way you protect yourself is by distancing yourself or by fighting or by freezing and not being engaged. And those chemicals also inhibit the prefrontal cortex for a short period of time. And so I'm left with this really emotionally powerful experience and the inability to feel like I can think clearly. And that, that becomes a really scary experience, a feeling of being out of control. And so a betrayed partner, naturally when they have that happen, they end up trying to control things that are actually beyond their control because they don't ever want to experience it again. And so they might start doing things like um, doing all of your work for you to get better. They might be the one calling to make appointments. They might be the one checking in on you every day. They might be the one coming to you and saying, let me check your text messages or let me 
you know, go through your car to make sure there's no alcohol or drugs in the car or whatever it is. That's a natural response from the trauma response because they're trying to make sure that they don't get burned again. They're trying to help themselves not get hurt. But ultimately it doesn't work because they can't, they can't actually stop it, but it leads to other things. And one of the other things that it leads to is negativity. If I see things from a negative lens, if I see my partner from a negative lens, it means that I don't have to re-engage. It gives me permission to stay at arm's length and to stay at distance. And it's a way of being self-protective because of the pain that has happened in the trauma from the earlier betrayal. And so oftentimes in my practice, I'll have a guy come in or a woman come in and they'll say, Hey, like I'm doing everything in my power and everything I do. My wife just says, or my husband just says, I don't believe you or that's bull crap, or I don't care what you do. It's too late. And they're closed off and they're distanced. And there's this feeling of like sadness. There's this feeling of fear that maybe it is too late. And this is what I'm hearing in your question. And, uh, and that's a valid fear. It is a valid fear. And, and if I've broken trust enough or in a big enough way or enough times, it is, it is possible that at some point your partner may not come back. So you so the bad news is, is your fear has some validity. Although I don't think that's bad news. I think that's common sense that when we do things to our relationships to damage them, we may have people set boundaries around the fact that they don't want to have those things go on in their lives. They don't want to be treated in certain ways. And so they might naturally eventually set those boundaries at a level where I might not have relationship with them anymore. And so while your fear is valid, the truth is, is that in most situations, in most scenarios, a betrayed spouse ultimately doesn't want to leave. The statistics are at about 75%, but almost everybody says, hey, if I get betrayed, like if, if my wife cheated on me, let's say, almost everybody says, if my wife cheats on me, I'm leaving. But the truth is, is that about 75% of the time, a, a spouse chooses to stay and try to work things out. And the statistics also show that the, the, the couples who end up in divorce, if, when asked several years later, they'll say that they wish they would have tried to keep the marriage longer. And so uh, I would bet if I was guessing that you have a spouse right now, you have a partner right now who's separated from you, who's hurting really badly. And I would bet that she's hurting over the dishonesty and the betrayal even more than whatever behavior you did that you were trying to hide. Almost always it's the betrayal and the lying and the dishonesty because that's the part that, that takes the rug out from underneath that ability to trust. Most partners, they might be disappointed with the behavior, you know, if you've gone and had an affair or if you've got an addiction to something or if you're hiding something else, you're obviously doing that because you feel ashamed of it. But, and, and, and most partners probably aren't going to like that if they know it, but most people also understand the human part of our existence and would be willing to at least consider working through things if 
they were brought up to speed and kept above board on what the work was going to look like and what the issues were because they understand that you're human. And so let's get into your question now a little bit more. How do I show my spouse that I've had a change of heart? Number one, you're separated. So she's not seeing anything. Uh, the truth is, is, is that the only real way that you have to actually possibly have an influence on your spouse seeing your change of heart, it's going to sound backwards, stop worrying about your spouse. And I say that like it's easy. I know it's not easy. But the, the focus has to be driven from the inside out. I have to look at my life and say, in, in essence, I've come to this place in my life where I've got these problems, where somehow I'm sitting in my own nest and I've crapped all over my own nest. And I have to be the one to clean this nest out. I've got to be the one to take a look at my issues and go to work on those and go to work on those so wholeheartedly and so completely that regardless if my spouse sees those things, I'm going to do those things. And what will happen is, is that when you put the, when you put the focus on the actual issue, which is, is that I've got to improve my life. I've got to get in touch with my better self. I've got to cultivate becoming the person that I'm designed to be. When I do those things, the energy that I kick back, the outputs that start to come off of my life, those are the things that people around me start to pick up on and go, oh man, like that guy's working really hard or wow, like there's some big time changes going on here or geez, I see a lot of effort there or oh, wow, there's more consistency showing up now. And, and so the focus has to be on me improving my life and taking ownership for my life, hoping that my spouse will see those things, doing things to attend to the marriage on whatever level I can with the boundaries that have been set in place. And with the distance that you have, it sounds like there's not a lot of connection right now, but whatever level you can, you should be sharing the things you're learning. You should be sharing some of the feelings that you're having and that you're wrestling with and being more transparent in those things because those are the things that you should be wrestling with on your own. Uh, there's this principle that happens. It, it happens in lots of different areas of life in, in rebuilding trust. It, this is true, but the idea is, is that so often we get hyper-focused on the wrong thing and the hyper-focus on the wrong thing is part of our downfall. And so in relationships, if I'm so worried about being left, if I'm so worried about having my spouse never talk to me again, uh, or having my losing my marriage, I'm going to be so overwhelmed and overcome by those fears that I'm going to miss how I can actually help it go right. And the way that I help it go right and the way I rebuild trust is through consistent action and effort over time. It's uh, there's, you know, you see that same principle. You know, I see that same principle in my practice with my therapy where, you know, if I get hyper-focused on the business side of things, and saying, okay, I got to make sure we've got revenue coming in. We've got to make sure we're collecting. We've got to make sure this and that and the other. The, the, the actual practice in the business starts to suffer. But if I'm tuned up and I'm in my heart and I know my purpose, my passion, which I believe God, God has called me to do the things that I do, the work that I do, 
And when I'm in touch with that, when I'm looking to become a better therapist and I'm constantly questioning myself and I'm learning and I'm reading new good books and I'm trying new, new techniques that I'm reading about in my therapy and I'm showing and developing real relationships with my clients and it's genuine and it's authentic, then the practice takes care of itself. The money is better. The business is full. Everything takes care of itself, but it's done based off of this principle that if you help enough people get what they want, you'll always be able to have what you want. Uh, but, but the focus has to be the helping other people instead of getting what I want. Now, if you've been in a, in a situation where you've done some betraying, it's hard not to feel the pain that you feel. And it's hard not to go into a self-centered kind of a place where I'm worried about me losing. Often when there's been betrayal, what ends up happening is, is that the person who's done the betraying, they end up in the doghouse and they're laying there in the doghouse and they're looking out at their partner. And there's two different ways, two different energies that come out. The first one is, are you better so that I can get out of the doghouse? Cause I'm really uncomfortable here and I don't want to have this pain anymore. And I don't want to worry about whether or not you're going to leave me. So could you just reassure me that you're not going anywhere? That energy doesn't help. In fact, it pushes the betrayed partner further, further away. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other energy is here I am in the doghouse and I'm looking out and going, man, I see your pain and I see some of the pain that I've caused you and I wish I could take it back. And I'm willing to try to help fix whatever I can, knowing that I probably can't ever fix it. And I care so much about making sure that you get better. Now, that energy is different. When that energy is sincere, a, a partner can start to feel some of those things. They can start to trust their gut feelings. You partner that up with consistent effort and action of all of the work that you're doing, the books that you're reading, the meetings you might be going to, the team that you're building, doing your own self-care, practicing your own self-compassion, which I know I'm rambling off a lot of these tools that we probably need to talk about in other other scenarios and uh, other episodes, but those things paired with that energy is the best way you have to be able to give your partner the space that they're going to need to choose to lean back in at their pace as they do their own work, a lot of it, which isn't their fault and being able to come to this place of little bits and pieces of trust being put back in little bits and pieces and acts of courage on both sides to be leaning back in and then trusting that there's going to be healthy boundaries and that there's going to be permission to be in process and then something that we call right effort lots of work and effort and the work and effort's going to happen on both sides if the marriage is going to survive which is another hard part about being the betrayed spouse because it doesn't feel fair that i'm getting this thing dumped in my lap that wasn't actually mine to begin with. And now I've got a whole bunch of work to do. So, um, the, the second part of your question was how do I stop thinking about worst case scenario that, that they'll leave me before they're able to see real change. I know that this is really, really difficult. Uh, when we talk about, you know, healing, when we talk about recovery, one of the main core principles, and we could do a whole other episode on this too, but I'll just spend a couple of minutes on it right now. One of the main core 
principles is the principle of acceptance and surrender. And the clients that I work with that come to a place in their own hearts, and this comes from the work inside out, meaning I'm starting to challenge my own false beliefs about myself. I'm starting to live from a place of power and love and, and see myself as a work in progress instead of this shameful place that says I'm no good. But when I end up doing those things, um, I get a better sense of myself and it allows me to then accept the reality that I have a spouse who's separated from me, who's been burned several times, who doesn't know if they want to lean back in. And I can hope that they will. And I can continue to do my work for myself to be the best person I can be and hope that they'll eventually lean back in and maybe get a chance to see some of those things but I can trust that I'm going to be okay, regardless of what happens. And when I can surrender that, give it over to something bigger, someone bigger and say, it's possible. And yet my life is still worth fighting for, regardless of that. I'm gonna to have to make these changes, whether my spouse is in or out of the picture. And the more that I come to that place of surrender and acceptance, I actually suffer less because I don't have to have those worries. So one way that you might practice this is, is that every time sounds like you're probably alone right now, probably a really hard scenario that you're in right now. You're probably in a lot of pain yourself. This worry is obviously a big deal. Every time that worry comes up, write it down on a piece of paper and go put it somewhere, put it in a box. Like, I, I call it God's inbox. You're going to practice writing it and surrendering it, that fear, that worry, giving it away. You can go put it out in your fire pit or whatever. If you have one, have a bonfire once a day when you like write it down, you know, 1700 times, you know, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, practice giving away the worry. Practice actually putting it on paper, speaking it out loud, giving away the worry, and then if you want to add some extra credit, circle back. And this is the hard part because you're the one who maybe has made the mistake, so to speak. Circle back with some compassion for yourself and your situation. Meaning, you know, I know everybody would have feel the feelings that I have. It's, it's okay that I feel this way. Even if maybe I put myself here, these feelings are normal. These feelings make me human. I'm not alone and continue to practice those things over and over and over again. Repetition, repetition. It's just like lifting weights, going to the gym, whatever. I have to go consistently and practice those things over and over again. So I wish you the very best of luck. I, I know what it's like to be in a situation where you know that your heart is shifted and your partner can't see it. And that's a hard spot to be in because no matter what you say, there's the possibility that it won't be believed because of the past history. And so I would just say to you that if your heart really is shifting and if you're sitting here listening to this right now and you're feeling broke, that brokenness isn't a bad thing. Allow it to change you. Allow it to motivate you. It will come through. The change of heart will come through if you'll be consistent. So uh, I wish you the best of luck. I hope the best for your partner too. I, I, I hope that you guys will be able to continue to 
walk the path of, and, and find the right answers for whatever's going to be right for your situation. So we're going to just maybe cover one more question today, guys. This was a pretty simple, short one here. Is there a difference between being triggered and just being reminded of past events? For example, driving down a road or near a place where I know my partner acted out will remind me of a situation I'm in, but is that a trigger that needs to be managed or just a thought that can be dismissed? I usually just dismiss the thought and try to think of something else, but the thought comes every time I'm on that road. Okay, so good question. I wonder if we're talking about a game of semantics here a little bit at first. You know, let me just say like whether I'm having a thought that needs to be managed or a trigger in some ways, couldn't they be the same thing? Maybe triggers are a broader topic and, and the thought just happens to fall under the umbrella of the trigger. But yeah, I would say you're probably having some level of a trigger when you're driving down the road and you pass a certain place and that thought comes to your mind. And I'd also say that it sounds like you're in a spot of doing some pretty good work on your part to see it as a thought, to allow yourself to acknowledge that it's there and then to dismiss it. Um, that's good work. That's in a lot of ways, that's a skill that, that we teach in my practice called the three second rule that goes right along with what you're doing. And, and what the three second rule is, is to notice, to become aware of anything that's coming up for me, triggering me uh, about things, whether it's about my past trauma, that comes up or whether it's something that, you know, I've got some type of compulsive behavior and addiction and there's something that triggers me to want to go act out that way. Uh, whether there's, you know, triggers that remind me of resentments that I have, whatever those things are, when I have those thoughts and they're the intrusive kinds of thoughts, maybe anxious thoughts, one of the skills that we teach is called the three second rule, which is that you notice the thought and before you do what most people do, which is like, oh, that's bad. I shouldn't be thinking that that's terrible. We and lock ourselves into it. You know, you guys think about it right now. If, if you were told not to think about something, you know, if I, the classic one that you guys have probably heard before maybe is, is if you don't, I'm going to tell you right now, don't think about a white polar bear. Well, what are you thinking about? Chances are that the vast majority of the audience right now can't get rid of a thought about a white polar bear because you were told not to think about it. And when we tell our brains not to do something, we start to actually hyper-focus on it. And that hyper-focus then leads to the anxiety and saying, why can't I get rid of this? And is there something wrong with me? And now it's going to build and now it's going to have the anxiety kick in. And then that's kind of how the loop of anxiety works is, is that I have a thought that seems intrusive it seems so intrusive that I shouldn't have it or I need to get rid of it or it's terrible or it's causing me a bunch of pain or it means that I'm bad. And the minute I start to worry about those things, that thought continues to loop, my emotions continue to grow. And then I'm stuck in that place of anxiety and then wondering why I feel so anxious all the time. So the three second rule, as I notice the thought and before I try to just instantly kick it out and be like, that's terrible, or I'm bad, or I shouldn't have that thought, don't think that, I actually say, hmm, that's, an, that's a thought. I'm having that thought right now. And then I have a conversation in my head that says, is this going to be effective for me? Is it going to lead me to the places I want to be going? And if the answer is no, then the, then the next step is, is that I, can't, I count to three. One, two, three. And imagine 
that you've put in your brain, like it's a car transmission and you're going to go to a hard shift to a different gear and you're going to distract your brain onto something else that will hold your attention for a short time. So, well, I'm having this thought, all this old trauma is coming up. I'm noticing that thought. It's not going to be effective for me to entertain it. One, two, three, and I'm going to move on to something else that'll grab my attention. And one of the ways that I use this for myself is I, I actually memorize poetry. And so when I have the three second rule, I will jump over and try to get through one of the poems that I'm, that I've memorized and get as far into it as I can, or quote a whole poem in my head. And what that does is it just buys time. It allows my brain to be able to kind of move on to other thoughts and just let that kind of stream of consciousness continue onward instead of getting bogged down and stuck in a certain place. So a lot of people misunderstand this skill and they think, oh, I, I thought about it for longer than three seconds. No, that's not what it is. It's noticing it, acknowledging it, asking yourself if it's going to be effective. It's not effective. Then you count the three, one, two, three. And on the three, it's the hard shift onto something else. Poetry, music, thinking about hobbies. I had one client who was a guitar player and he would imagine just kind of playing this big, massive power chord in a, in a solo of one of his favorite songs. And it would be kind of just his way of like moving on. Um, anything that can grip your attention for a few split moments just to help the brain move. Think about it with our, with our thoughts. We have millions of thoughts per day. We're, we're only aware of a select small percentage of those thoughts because so much of our lives are lived on autopilot. And if we happen to pause and notice that a thought is causing a certain reaction in our body, and now that we're conscious with it, the minute that it becomes conscious, we're now paying attention to it. And we have a chance to then notice it and learn to let go of it. The same way that all the other thoughts are just being naturally going in one ear and out the other throughout our day nonstop. And so learning to notice those things gives us the power to choose to look at them, the power to choose where we're going to put our next thought or our, our attention, what we're going to attend to in the moment, once we're conscious of it. Uh, something else I want to talk about with this topic of triggers for a second is, is that, you know, as we're talking about whether it's trauma or whether it's resentment, when we've had some type of uh, a powerful emotional experience, the, that emotional part of the experience is also tied to our conscious or cognitive experience. And, and our brains are such miraculous things that oftentimes our brains are working at such a speed that we can't keep up with it. And there's kind of a fascinating study that was done on this idea of triggers. And the study was putting, putting a group of men into MRI machines and doing brain scans while they flashed images through, through a screen to these men. And then they just kind of watched what happened in their brain. And what they, what they found is, is that they'd flash images of scenery and animals and other things through, through, but interspersed into that for two hundredths of a second, they also put pornographic images. And what they found is, is that the men would kind of come out of after they'd been in the experiment and they would report having been kind of sexually aroused, 
but they wouldn't be able to remember the fact that they had seen those images. And the brain scans also showed that the arousal was happening in the brain, even though these men couldn't actually verbalize what they'd seen because they didn't remember seeing it because it didn't actually register. And the, the, the research kind of came to the conclusion that we have our bodies so connected to our brains with other things that we can be triggered by something without even knowing what caused the trigger. Our, we can have something happen where, you know, you're driving by the certain place you're talking about. You could drive by that place and have your heart start to race and not even know why your heart's racing, so to speak. You could have a certain lyric come on on the radio in a certain song that, that you're not even really paying attention to that can light your body up with something old that's that you've experienced. It's been an emotional thing and you, you can try to backtrack into it and you might not even be able to find the reason why you become triggered. So our brains and our bodies are all interconnected with these powerful emotional experiences. And so the work oftentimes is going to be just as much about noticing and managing and grounding our bodies as it is managing our thoughts. Triggers go much broader. They can come from the inside. They can come from our own thoughts. They can come from getting sick. They can come from other things. And they can also come from the outside, like music or driving by a certain place. Or, I mean, the craziest things can be, become triggers. Uh, one, one past client who had some really significant sexual trauma in their life um, when they were children, they're adults now, married, and, they're, and she came in, she's having problems with, with not being able to sleep and also problems with their sex life and their relationship because she felt so closed down and she didn't know why there was something wrong. And as we were meeting and continued to meet, one of the things that, that kind of came out and we came, came to realization of is, is that during the time of her childhood trauma, when this terrible thing was happening to her, she was looking up at the ceiling and she could see the smoke alarm and the, the flashing red light. And, and somehow that stuck and somehow her body was picking up that same natural trauma response that had happened a long time ago by the flashing red lights of the alarm clock. And so her body was always on high alert in her own bedroom as an adult woman. And it was all because of that little flashing red light so that it was like the place where she should feel the safest was a place she was always on high alert and didn't even know why because this trigger was happening on a, on a physiological almost subconscious level until we were able to sort of break down and understand what the patterns were that were going on when she changed her alarm clock out and when she did some other kinds of treatment, some EMDR, she was able to kind of have those things move for her and not have that same experience and actually be able to get to where not only was she able to let go of the past memories, but have, you know, a deeper, more connected relationship with her husband. So, Hopefully those things are helpful, you guys. These are really good questions. I am so grateful to be a part of this podcast. I am grateful for the participation that we're getting from so many of you. The, you know, the, the, the reaching out that you're doing via email, uh, these questions that you're, you're posting for us to try to answer. If, uh, if you have more feedback for us, we'd love to hear it. We're constantly trying to make it better. 
and uh, hope you guys continue to fight the good fight. Look for the good in, all, in your lives. This world has been a pretty rough go for a while. I firmly believe that seeking gratitude can build us and make our lives better and more rich, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And uh, you guys, you guys have an awesome week.